Hello and welcome to Behind the Mask, the podcast where Tom and I offer a fresh lens on the male psyche and explore behaviours, perceptions and mental health in 2021. Today's episode is with Dan Rudgley. Dan's a painter, decorator and a single dad of two kids. He's battled alcohol and cocaine addiction and this podcast tells his story. Yeah, not going to beat around the bush. It's a pretty heavy episode with Dan. We hear about his journey and his recovery. We think there's some really important lessons in there as well that anybody could take into their everyday lives. And it's also really important to say, if you feel concerned about yourself or somebody in your life that has an addiction problem or may do, there's loads of good places you can go to for help, including Change, Grow, Live. They're based all around the country. So go to changegrowlive.org to find local support if you think you need it. Firstly, Dan, do you want to kick off by telling us just a little bit about yourself? I'm a painter and decorator. I'm a single parent to two children, seven and eight-year-olds, boy and a girl. And um, I'm now in recovery. I've been in recovery from alcoholism and uh, cocaine addiction for just over 10 years. So I live just outside of Tunbridge, you know, with my children. And, and, and you know, my life now is very, very different to how it used to be, how it used to be. You know, there was, um, it's the, there's a big shift from the way I grew up, then to how I was living my life through my 20s. And then how it's how it is now, what it's been like for the past ten years. You know, they 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 seem a million miles away. You know, but um, I am that person who experienced all that stuff. It's um it's a funny thing, isn't it? You know, you, you could be at a football game with fifty thousand people, and um, I could be at one end of stand. You could be at the other. We're watching the same game, yeah. but how we perceive that game is different. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so. I may see it a little differently to how my sister would view it and my older brother would view it, but, you know, I can just only tell you how it was for me. It was a really funny thing because my mum's working all the time and my dad was working in London, so he wasn't really around and my mum would be working. But it just felt like to me that we was just left in this behind the scenes to sort of fend for ourselves in some ways. That's how I sort of felt growing up you know, sort of cast to one side, so to speak. You know, my mum and dad, they was, um, my mum used to drink every day and I wouldn't, you know, she um, she wouldn't be falling all over the place, but she certainly drank all, all the, um, every day. And my dad would have periods where he wouldn't drink, you know, so he'd be away working and he'd get back late. So we didn't really see him a lot. And then, you know, there'd be these outbursts of where he'd start drinking and then this eruption of, shouting and screaming and would start and um you know the odd dinner plate going up the wall and stuff like that and um you know that that I was just petrified really you know I was just really really petrified and you, you know it was quite a creepy house that we was living in you know this 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 restaurant it was me and my sister thought it was haunted so we're always out the back you know and like we was fearful enough as it was, and then all this, you know, this this arguing would start through the drinking and stuff, and um, you know, just just felt really, really fearful as a child, really fearful as a child, and I can remember this time that um, 
my parents, you know, my dad's shouting and screaming and they're shouting and screaming in the kitchen and stuff. And I was just in the front room holding my ears and I couldn't contain it anymore. I just ran into the kitchen and I just started kicking all the, all the kitchen unit cupboards, just screaming and shouting, wanting them to stop. And, um, you know, it did, it stopped it. It was, it, it stopped the arguing and they could see sort of what it had done to me. And, um, and looking back on my life now, I can, I can see that there was a principle for living that I learned in that moment that was when I'm feeling uncomfortable inside or if I'm feeling fearful or if I don't know how to control a certain emotion, my principle limb was to kick off because what had happened is I'd kicked off and I'd got my own weight and stopped the screaming and shouting. And, um, you know, that was a that was a principle that I carried right up until I was 29 years old and when I ended up in a detox, you know, this this idea of, you know, just not being able to control my emotions, um, not being able to express them in a in a healthy way. And every time I felt uncomfortable, that would be it. I'd kick off or, or, or I'd be drinking, I'd be using, you know, and um, really fearful at school as a kid as well, you know terrible fears of what people might think of me. You know, I'd be in lessons at school and um, I would be so fearful, too, way too fearful to put my hand up in a lesson and say, sir, can, can you just tell me about that? Could you, could, you know, I didn't quite get what you were saying, you know, just so self-obsessed with what I might look like and it, what people are going to think about me. Was it like that at home if you, um, if you asked a question? I, I can remember I was in front of the TV and I was... Um, trying to dance like Michael Jackson and I had Billie Jean on. I can just feel this presence behind me. I turned around and my dad was standing there and he just started laughing at me. It was a Mickey take, you know, that wounds me. And even speaking about it now, you know, it, 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 it can really like have a, a physical effect on me. You know, I feel embarrassed when I think about it, you know, that. So, you know, definitely come from stuff like that. And, you know, my relationship with him, you know, even now is um, I struggle, you know, to, to have a, a really open and honest father and son relationship with him, you know, because I think there's so much stuff that's gone on over the years that stuff that I still need to deal with, you know, there's no doubt about it. Um, you know, the effect that we can have on a child, yeah. you know, what, what I know now is, is that, you know, my presence in around my children, how I speak, how I react to them, you know, is um, at the age that they are now is a really important time to be mindful of, of how I am. I think that a lot of dads, well, a lot of parents, but particularly dads, don't realise the effect, the impact they can have on children with how they behave, you know, showing them love and love and affection and things like that. These little things like your dad might not even remember laughing at you in that moment, but that's something that's going to stick with you for your whole life. And you're talking, you know, we're talking about it now. You know, if I ever needed to borrow some money or if I ever needed anything, it'd help me. But on an emotional level, on, on a level that I so desperately needed and wanted, it just wasn't there. You know, it was a very, a relationship of Mickey taking all the time, you know, it'd be little slide digs or a Mickey take or something. And, um, you know, so, and I can remember about five years ago, I came down the stairs and and my son Zach he was um he was dancing in front of the in front of the TV yeah. and I stood in the doorway and I was watching him 
And he turned round and he looked at me and he was so happy and I smiled at him. And, um, and he just carried on dancing. He was just smiling and carried on dancing. And I walked away and I thought, wow, what an amazing moment. He, he didn't feel as I felt, you know, and, um, and, and again, you know, that will stick with me forever, his little face and, and knowing that I didn't impress upon him something that got impressed yeah, upon that's me. that's beautiful. And that's what it's all about, though, isn't it, Dan? It's about learning from those experiences and making a, a change to, to how it affected you, say, negatively yeah. and, and doing something about that. And yeah. you said you had a sister, Dan. What yeah. was your sister's relationship like with your dad? So, you know, my sister... Um, lived just along the hallway from me, you know, and, uh, and she, she struggled with, with my dad for many years and um, she's, she's made peace with it. What, what happened with me and my sister, we became really secretive, really, is what happened. And uh, she kept her life a secret and my life was a secret as we was getting older. And um, because there was just no room to be open and honest in, in our household, it wasn't one of them households where you know, you'd all sit at the table and, and, and enjoy each other's company and, what, and have interest in what each other, what was going on in each other's lives, you know. And um, she drank and would party like I did and stuff um, as we got older. But she, she, she could leave it alone, you know. She could go out for the night and um, she could go home, go to sleep, wake up with a hangover and yeah. go to work, um, you know. And I couldn't do mm. that. You know, this, this this thing about addiction, you know, nature, nurture, what is it? Where does it come from? You know, and um, for me, what I know for me is, is that the environment that I grew up in, it added to all my fears. It added, added to my um, low self-esteem and all of that stuff. But as I would have been an addict, whether I'd grown up in a really happy home in a mansion somewhere or flat, you know. I think so. So... On, it, it, it's just you know my, the way I, my body processes alcohol and drugs is completely different to how my sister does. Alcohol to me is like liquid gold. It's the only way I can explain it to you. And um, when I took a drink, when I first took a drink, you know, I'll go back to it. I was at school and I was 13 years old, 13, 14 years old. This kid had nicked a bottle of whiskey from his dad and he'd nicked some weed off of his older brother. And he came into school and um, behind the bike sheds, as you do, where everyone's smoking and that. We opened this bottle of whiskey and we're all drinking this whiskey, rolled this pathetic joint that looked like a big tan pack. It was all, you know, just rubbish and we're all getting stoned and drink. And it was, I just felt alive. You know, something, that, that, that booze was in me and within minutes, it was like, I can breathe. That's how it felt. I felt so comfortable in my own skin all of a sudden. And I chased that, I chased that until I was 29 years old. You know, alcohol does something to me that it doesn't do to my brother or my sister. You know, it gives me this feeling that you know, this. I'd go out with my brother for a couple of pints and it, it would be on a Wednesday and we'd have a couple of pints of lager and he, he'd say, I'm going home now, I'll get off work in the morning. And I'd look at him and think, what? The night's still young. You know, this feeling of excitement and something was going to happen was always there when I drank, you know, and, um, and, and, and I just couldn't, couldn't leave it alone once I started. Was it just kind of a gradual 
progression. Yeah, so you know, as soon as that happened, um, every opportunity to, to 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 get weed and and to get alcohol, we would we'd steal it. We'd we'd run into off licenses and grab cases of lager and run out and um, you know you know just just running wild. You know that's you know and then started obviously going into nightclubs going into nightclubs when we were 17 and and taking ecstasy and then speed and then cocaine and and you know f- throughout them years i sort of i'd made a version of myself that that protected me from people really knowing who i was you know and i was always in fights i was always fighting and um in nightclubs and you know that that would be like a another drug to me the adrenaline that I, I would feel and the rush of having having these fights and things and you know and form this reputation as someone who was a bit tough and <clears throat> but inside group honestly mate i was uh, i was dying i just felt like a petrified little child all the time you know I, I, i've said it before to people you know i used to feel like Going back to that football stadium thing, I feel like that I was in a stadium with hundreds of thousands of people around me screaming through a microphone and no one could hear me. That's how it used to feel. What did the alcohol give you? So the alcohol and the drugs gave me a completely new sense of self. Mm. Them fears and that inferiority complex and them them feeling inadequacy around people and um, not being worthy, not being good enough always worrying about what people were thinking of me. The, the booze and the drugs would take that away, especially the alcohol. The alcohol would just allow me to feel so free, but then there's a double-edged sword there because what happens is you're forming a false sense of who you are. So, so this ego self, which is for, you know, like this tough guy, all, all this nonsense. And then this freedom you're feeling, but you're too fearful to stop the behaviour of the other person you're forming. Do, do, do you get what I mean? So in the end, I was doing things I didn't want to do because I just needed to keep up with this reputation. That's a, that's a really, really you know, dark place to be in. When, you, when your self-worth is, is made out of how other people view you. Yeah, that is dangerous. And so it seems like alcohol and the drugs were very much a crutch for you to kind of perhaps escape the the thoughts that are in your head but obviously the use of those things long term is really just going to exacerbate that and you kind of it seems you know from an outside perspective you're in two problem areas there one is that yeah yeah long-term use of these things is going to increase your anxiety and and things like that but then this other sense of yourself your alter ego is growing and that's how people know you so it's then harder to shatter that and open up and and talk to someone about it and would you say that sounds sounds true for you yeah, I mean, that's absolutely mm. what it is. You know, um, they say, you know, like an ad, and this, this sits with me perfectly, you know, an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. Mm. And that's what it is. You know, you're, you're, you've got this, these, these two worlds going on within you and um, neither of which you can seem to get yourself out of, mm. you know. And then as the years go on, um, you know, I, I'm starting to lose job. You know, I, I, I education wasn't very good. You know, I got kicked out of school, sent to a naughty boys' school, and um, you know, left there with no qualifications. Started playing football with older men. Started working on building sites, older men. So I was always drinking with older people, hanging around with older people, and um, 
you know, but then the jobs, I, I, I wouldn't turn up for work. I, I, I'd be drinking and not make it. And, um, you know, and, and that, that, that was just the story of my life, really. You know, from, from the age of 18 until I was 29 years old, summed up in a nutshell, I would drink, use, get into relationships, lose the relationships, the relationships would break down, get jobs, lose jobs. And, um, you know, and that was just the constant theme of my life. And I could never, never pull it together. You know, I, I remember being in London on this bus and I was coming down the King's Road and um, there was this guy sitting there. It was in the summer and he had this lovely, lovely linen suit on, Panama hat, and he was sitting outside this restaurant and he had this glass of wine. He was holding a newspaper. And I went past on the bus and I just thought, why can't I do that? Why can't, that's how I wanted to live my life and that's how I wanted to drink. I wanted to be able to drink like a normal person did. I wanted to be able to, f that, that image even now, so he's felt, he looks so free, if that makes sense. Yeah. At that point in time, when you're in that state of mind where you're, or you're in that position where you feel like you're an alcoholic, you're, you're getting into fights regularly, the drug taking, is there anything in that moment, in hindsight, that you think might have been something that would have helped you or you said you're in this constant conflict is there anything like talking about it more that kind of thing would that have been useful at all at that point or is it kind of like it's already you're kind of too far gone at that point as it were well it's it's a funny thing tom because it was that you know i'd grown up where you didn't speak about stuff yeah. Do you, do you get Absolutely. what I mean? So the, the, the male influence that I had in my life when he was around wasn't at work, was my father. And, and he wasn't like that, you know. And my mum was always busy. That I, I didn't have anybody, there was no moral compass, mm -hmm. so to speak, to look to. Um, and so I'd never, I'd never, you know, with my children now, I tell, talk to my children about anything. If, I've, if I'm upset about stuff, I don't mind. I'll have a tear in front of them. They'll say to me, oh, Dad, what's the matter? And I'll talk to them about it. You know, and they're really open and honest with me. And I, I, I think that that's a must, you know. That's, that's, that's a big must for me now is this to just be honest about what's going on with me. You mentioned that you became a cocaine addict as well. Mm. And was that? Again, sort of a similar path to the alcohol. You tried it, it made you feel a certain way. So you just did it again and again and again to get that release. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, it was just by that time, everyone I hung around with, everybody I knew, everybody drunk, either sold drugs, took drugs, you know, so, so there was, it was just around all the time. All the people I knew, everybody sniffed cocaine and drank. Um, so it was so accessible to me. It, it was just so accessible to me, you know, and, I, I, and then I was just like the worst drug dealer ever. You know, I, you know, a large amounts of cocaine with this idea that I'm going to sell it and make my, and I'd start sniffing it and then that would be it. You, you wouldn't see me for five days and all of a sudden thousands of thousands of pounds worth of debt to, to drug dealers and with no way of paying them. Um, so more fear added to my life, you know, just, just doing stuff all the time that completely added more fear, more fear, more fear. Did that amplify the effects that you had from alcohol? Was, did the Coke essentially amplify that? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the drinking, I was drink, you could drink three, four days straight then, 
you know, whereas before, you know, you might do some speed or whatever and you could drink a lot, but the come down was horrible, all of that sort of stuff. But with the cocaine, it was different, you know, the drinking and it just never felt like you were drunk. Yeah. Um, I mean, looking at, um, you know, the countless other people who are in this position and get into this situation, something that really interested me right at the start of this chat was when you said that you felt like it was in your nature, you had this kind of addictive personality and it was always going to be be this way in in some respects. Do you think that, like you say, drugs like cocaine are like extremely common and a lot of people a lot of people are going to try that because their friends have it or friends are doing it, that kind of thing. Do you think that, I mean, do people need to be much more reflective on themselves as a person and what they can handle? Like, am, do I have an addictive personality? If I try this once, is that going to be the start of a terribly slippery slope for me? Do you know, it is... Do you think like that at that age? That's it, the thing, you don't. Yeah, you get, it's, it's easy in hindsight, you don't. isn't it? You, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah. is. It's, it's um, you know, you can have all the drug awareness programs in the world and you can teach school kids the effects of alcohol and drugs and heroin. You, you, you can do all of that stuff. And um, thousands and thousands of people, kids, young young adults may see them programs and, and go through different programs they have at youth clubs, all of this different stuff. And if you save one person's life, then it was worth it. If one person buys into that and says, do you know what, I don't, that, I don't want to do that, then the whole thing has been worth it. The value of a life. You know, but the majority of the time, people don't think like that. People aren't going to think. They're just going to think, yeah, all right, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. And, you know? yeah it doesn't work like that. No, you have to allow people, you know, this lovely lady in um, an AA meeting once said, you have to allow people the right to be wrong. And I thought, wow, you, you have to allow people the freedom to live their life, make their own mistakes, because that is the only way that you're going to learn from anything. You know, to try to contain myself and to hide away from different things you know there's no growth in that I, I won't grow as a human being you know I, I'm you know the best thing that ever happened to me really was becoming a drug addict and an alcoholic it was the best thing that ever happened to me because it, it was the platform to where my life's gone gone now I would never, I would, I would never have been able to do the things that I do. I would never have been able to meet the people I've met, seen the things I've seen, you know, experience the things I've experienced, the children, everything. You know, it's um. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. You say that, and I know so many people, and with myself as well. Looking at my own life, I can say without a doubt that the worst things that have happened to me, in in some ways, are the best things, and I wouldn't change them because hearing you now and like how eloquent you are how healthy you look like i know people listening to this can't see you but you, you look like a re like so so healthy you wouldn't know any of this um i mean what how how did the kind of recovery start was there a moment that you hit rock bottom and then found change i mean we, i think it'd be great to hear about that so all the, the drinking's escalating the cocaine's escalating which is causing more drinking um the more fear that that's creating and the more I start to isolate from, from life in a sense, you know, I was, um, in the end I was, I'd be petrified to ring anybody 
or you know i'd i'd be petrified to go out worrying about who i was going to see this that and the other and um you know and every time i drank it would be on my own in the end most of the time uh sniffing uh, taking drugs on my own and um you know it was just pitiful in the end i was always i'd be driving along i had no control of my bowel movement in the end i'd wet myself all the time um you know just the way i lived living with ashtrays full of cigarettes there was be cups around with mold growing in you know my life was just it, it just wasn't good and um and and this 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 time i, I i'd been drinking and using for a good few days I, I was completely completely just just not there and um and on about the, uh, the third day fourth day whatever it was i went to take a drink and the only way I can explain it to you was my whole life shot through my mind within a few seconds. Um, and it was more, it was more than visual. It was a feeling of what I'd become, who I was, all my past, everything that I'd done, my relationship to the world around me, to, 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 to other human beings, to my family, um, some people call it a moment of clarity. Some people have called it a spiritual experience. I don't know. All I can tell you is, is I didn't want to be me anymore in that moment. And, and it was the first time that I knew I wanted to change. It, for years, people have said to me, come on, Dan, you've got to sort yourself out. You've got to sort yourself out. And yeah, 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 yeah. And um, the other one was, why'd you do it, Dan? Why are you drinking like this all the time? Why, why can't you just... And, I, and in the end, I'd say to people, I don't know. I really don't know. And I didn't know why I'd done the things that I'd done. And um, something, something happened. Something happened within me and I knew I wanted change. And I went to my mum's and um, I can just remember like coming into, coming through the front door just not in a good place and saying to her, I want help. I really want some help. And, um, and then two days that I'd be, she, she got me into this bedroom. I got laid on the bed and I was gone. And, um, a few days later, two or three days later, I think it was two days. I woke up with her. She was standing next to me on a phone saying, I can get you in a detox. Will you go? And, um, I just said, yeah, I'll go. And, um, you know, why I, I, I'd surrendered to, I'd surrendered with inside myself to the fact that I couldn't go on as I was any longer, you know, and that, that rock bottom, um, some people never reach that. That never happens. Some people, you know, you know, it isn't what goes on around people that in my experience, creates the rock bottom necessary for somebody to to recover maybe it does but it's usually an internal rock bottom you know and and, and basically we're in this place and you they start doing group meetings where you talk about your feelings and um and it still makes me laugh now because you've got a group of people who don't know how they feel you know you just have not got a clue what's going on i certainly didn't and um 
they want you to start talking about how you're feeling. And I just used to sit, I don't, I haven't got a clue, you know, and, or I'd cry, one of the two, I'd say, I haven't got a clue, or I'd just start crying. And, um, you know, and then there's some counselling happening and stuff like that. Um, and they never took you out to any sort of 12-step fellowship meetings. There was no talk of um, recovery programmes. It was just really, you detoxed, you started to eat well, you started doing a bit of exercise, you had some counselling, some therapy. Um, and, you you know, you keep a diary, a journal and, and things like that. You know, but over that, over that 28 days or whatever it was, I started to open up more. I can remember in this meeting, um, they handed around this morning reading. So somebody one day would do the morning reading. It came to me and, you know, I was like I was when I was at school again, not wanting to put my hand up in front of people to ask the teacher for help. And I was thinking, and I was red, I was going red before, but I knew the book was coming to me and I was getting red and I was sweating. And, um, and I read this morning reading out and I was kept stuttering and, and I could feel myself going bright red and I couldn't pronounce words properly, all that sort of stuff. And I come out of that meeting and I, and something felt different. I thought, wow, I've done that. I just, I just read in front of 10 other people, you know, with a therapist standing there and they're all looking at me and I managed to do it. And I thought, wow. You know, and that was a really, really powerful thing for me. That was a really, really powerful moment. And um, But when I'd first come out of the detox, they'd, they'd give me a, a where to find leaflet for 12-step meetings. So it would have a list of all the meetings in Kent you could go to. And they'd give me a Cocaine Anonymous one and an Alcoholics Anonymous one. And uh, that was the only speak of any sort of 12-step fellowships. That was it. When you were leaving, they'd give you these leaflets. <clears throat> and... Um, I can remember my mum, I went to stay at my mum's and I said, I'm going to go to one of these CA meetings. And um, I've gone to this CA meeting and there was these, all these fellas, I think there was a couple of women there, but there a lot of geese, all, all sat around this table and they were all reading the book Alcoholics Anonymous and they was talking about the third step which is that they made a decision to turn their will and lives over to the care of God as they understood him. And um, all I heard was God. And I thought, oh man, what have I walked into here? What am I doing here? And um, I was pretty disgusted with it all. I just thought, this is, what is this? And um, I left the meeting and this guy had sort of, uh, and I still know him now, he, before I left, I mean, I've always said that he sort of blocked the entrance so I couldn't get out before he spoke to me. But he didn't. He, he, he come and had a chat with me. He gave me a book of Alcoholics Anonymous and he gave me his number and he asked for mine. I gave him my number and he said, let's stay in touch. Let's just stay in touch. And of course, I, I got, got back to my mum's and I was like, oh, and I'm ranting and raving about their meetings and they're the God Squad. It's a cult. It's this, that and the other. He got this weirdo who took my phone number who's already messaging me and you know, really didn't like anything to do with it. And um, threw the book on the side, never opened it. And um, so then I go off to this, move to Maidstone and I go off to this day programme. And, um, you know, I'm starting to eat really well. 
starting to look healthy, sunbeds, going to the gym lots. And um, and are you tempted to drink it or t- uh, take Coke at this point? No, no, no. There was no temptation there. And everybody's saying to me, oh, wow, well, you're doing, you look well. And, um, you know, and, and that's keeping me going. I'm thinking, yeah, I'm doing all right. You know, I'm starting to look different and, you know, I'm clean and dress well and I'm going... And uh, and there was a guy there who was going to these meetings, and um, and I'd rant and rave in the in the little sessions that we'd have, and I'd say about that that weird meeting that I'd attended, and um, just not for me. And he'd go, "All oh, right," and he'd sort of smile at me, and and um, and then a day later he'd come back in, he'd say, "Oh yeah, last night I went to me meeting and that," and I'd have something to say about it, and he'd never respond to me in any in any negative way. He was like, "Oh yeah, well that's for you, but for me it works," sort of thing. And I was getting really cynical about it all. And um, about two months in, all I can say to you is, I woke up one morning and I felt like a just I felt like a, that six year old kid who was just just petrified of life you know, just petrified, the fear, it was horrendous, you know, it was, I I didn't want to get out of bed and there was no reason, no external reason why I should be feeling like that, you know, I hadn't gotten any trouble with the police, I hadn't done anything wrong, I hadn't drunk, I hadn't let anybody down, I just woke up and I was so fearful and, um, you know, I only know how how to deal with them feelings one way, and and I thought I just got to, I've got to go and have a drink, and um, and I drove to this pub, and sat outside this pub, and it and I was in my van for about forty minutes, and it was the first time ever in my life when the idea to have a drink had come into my mind, that I actually contemplated whether that was the right thing to do, and and there was this pull of needing to change the way I was feeling and didn't know any other ways to do that other than drink or just sit with it. And I, and, and, and I didn't know. And I was thinking, I don't want to go in there. I can't go in there. And then my phone rang. And um, it was a, a guy from one of these day programs that I was going to. And he said, what are you up to? And it was the first time, again, that I'd been really honest in my life to, to, to someone really who was a stranger to me. And I said, um, I don't feel good, mate. I said, I'm sitting outside a pub and I'm, I'm going to go in and I really want to go in and have a drink. He said, no, Dan, don't do that. Whatever you do, don't do that. He said, come to a meeting. I said, I don't want to come to one of them fucking meetings. I do not want anything to do with them meetings. And he went, please, Dan, just come to a meeting. Just meet me. Come down into Maidstone and meet me and we'll go to a meeting. At least you won't go into the pub. And I said, all right. And I went to this meeting and... Um, there was there was a girl there who who told her story. She was me. She was telling my story. She was talking about growing up as a kid and how she had no reason to feel inferior but felt inferior. She talked about feeling distant from everybody, even though they, they was her family. But she felt distant. She felt like somehow she was different from them and I could identify. She'd drop her children to her mums and and she'd go out with her mates, or I think she, she, no, she had one child then, she'd, she'd go out, she'd drop her child round to her mum's with intention of going up into town with her mates, and three days later she'd wake up in like Wales and stuff like that with no recollection how she got there. And I'd think, fucking hell, that, that, that used to happen to me. That's what I'd do. You know, there was never a time 
There was never a time, you know, obviously from the age of 15 to 18, maybe 19, where you're starting to go to pubs and nightclubs and with the intention to get wasted with your pals. But after that, really, there was never any time that I wanted to to get wasted. I always, in my mind, I just wanted that feeling that came from when I first took that drop of alcohol, that, that, that sense of everything's okay, the fear's gone, I feel relaxed. And that's all I ever wanted. And I'd go out with the intention of having a couple of pints. And three or four days later, I mean, I was living in, um, in Leytonstone and I'd just moved there with the idea of getting my life together. I moved into this house share and gone to the job centre to find myself a job. Come out the job centre, walked past the pub and thought, oh, I'll, go, I'll just go and have a pint. And I went in this pub and three days later, I woke up on an aeroplane that had just landed in Spain with no recollection of what had gone on. I didn't even leave the airport. I flew home that day. Welcome to Malaga Airport. What the fuck am I doing here? Just, just, and stuff like that would happen to me. And this, this girl was speaking about it happened to her and I'm thinking, wow, I can relate to that. And she starts talking about, you know, these, um, waking up without drink and she 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 spoke about this called them the four horsemen you know of what terror bewilderment frustration and despair and she'd wake up feeling like that with with no reason to be feeling like that but she'd just feel all that stuff and I'd think what that happens to me I wake up and I just some days can be so discontent with everything or I can be really fearful and I just don't know why I'm feeling like it and um she started talking about her recovery and she started talking about, she started talking about how she'd started to become a really good mum and that she started to take on life's responsibilities um, and that she was going to college and she was going to redo her education and then she was going to go off to university and she'd um, passed their driving test in recovery and that she was depend a child had a dependable mother now who was all there for her and I was thinking fucking hell how do you you can live like that <laughs> from this feeling like this and and living your life like that you can actually start living like that and um, that blew my mind you know, that blew my mind. And I spoke to her after the meeting. She said, you need to get a sponsor and stuff. Um, a sponsor somebody who's been around, been sober for a while, who has been through the 12 steps of whichever fellowship that they go to. And, um, and they'll help you through the program, help you through the steps. And uh, that's what I did. You know, I, I got a sponsor and um, he suggested that I get a service position at a meeting. So a service position is, you know, you can make the teas or you set the chairs up. You can greet people as they come into the meeting. And um, so I started setting up the chairs in this meeting, you know, and um, unbeknown to me at that time, what I know now is, is that that was the first time that I started to be of service to other people with wanting nothing in return. So I'd turn up to the meeting early with no one else there, set up the chairs, 
And then people would come in, have their cups of tea, be able to sit down, go through the meeting, they'd go, you'd pack the chairs away at the end. And um, to start to be of service with wanting nothing in return. Yeah, that, that's really powerful, Dan. I think that message of being of service to others is such such a good message, it's such a strong message. And it does have some religious connotations to it. Um, you were speaking earlier about this this man who's done so much for you that you met in AA and and has called kind of you know tried to impart some religious principles on you. I also know that a big part of your recovery from speaking to you prior was was things like praying and meditation and, and things like that, which again are obviously very linked to religion. With them being such a big part of your recovery and, and really helping you, do you, would you say that you've become a religious person from, from this experience? I've had my days of going to church yeah. and um, then I've gone and had it with the Buddhists. And what I realise now is, is that all of that stuff yeah. is are the fingers that are pointing to a journey, an interior journey. So it doesn't really matter what faith or religion it is. Yeah. All of them are pointing to a journey that we can experience internally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you. I mean, I'm, I'm not a religious person at all, but something I do believe in is that I think the morals and the lessons within the religions often can be really useful. Like a lot of kids learn Christianity from a young age at like primary yeah. school, but it teaches yeah. you being good to people, not stealing, not lying, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then, yeah. in, you know, particularly with Buddhism as well, you mentioned yeah. mindfulness and meditation being a part of your yeah. recovery journey. And then again, you don't necessarily have to believe in Buddhism, but you can take some of the elements from it and then apply it to your own situation, yeah. which sounds like yeah. what you did. The spirituality as well gave you a sense of purpose and we've spoken a lot about the importance of a sense of purpose and beforehand the alcohol you felt gave you a sense of purpose and belonging and I guess it was shifting that to something and that is one of the benefits of religion and spirituality spirituality and that's one of the benefits is 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 being able to shift that sense of purpose into something positive yeah I mean just just that just to add to Roop's, uh, to Roop's point there, something that I've picked up on throughout speaking to you so far, Dan, is this feeling of belonging thing. And I noticed it. you spoke about, you know, the drinking and the fighting you were doing with other people around you at a young age, the boys' school, the detox uh, centre, Alcoholics Anonymous, religion, family. It seems like such a it's such an integral part of being a human and a part of your journey is this feeling of belonging and finding the right place to belong. Yeah. Now. And, and do you know that I've found... That belonging is, I found that belonging within the rooms of AA. Um, but I also found that belonging with a God of my own understanding, with a, with a power in my life that I never knew was there, but it was always there. It was, it's inside me, I have my belief, it's inside root, it's inside you, that power, that seed that the rains grow, like you talked about, is within each of us. And... Um, it's it's tuning into that and 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 really there's there's that takes effort as well because you're there's a discipline in it to get up and meditate there's a discipline in doing your you know if you read in spiritual books if you have a certain uh, you know if you have a sort of a morning routine to your life there's a discipline to do that stuff it's like exercise and um you know meditation for me has been the number one thing that's really 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 helped me you know it's um 
I've never I've never had any sort of profound experiences whilst meditating, you know, but I can remember when I first started meditating, I sort of speak a little bit of my life once I got into recovery and so I was six months sober and um, and they suggest that in your first year of recovery, you don't start making any too big decisions like, um, you know, changing jobs, getting married, all of this sort of stuff. I'm six years sober at the height of complete unawareness, really, even though I'm doing some of this stuff. And um, and I meet this 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 lady in AA. She's four months sober. I'm six months sober. All the elders are saying you shouldn't be getting involved with each other and what do they know sort of thing. And within a few months, we're living with each other and within a few months, she's pregnant and and, you know, and then we're getting married. And then all of a sudden, all these huge responsibilities of life are there every time I open my eyes, you know, and, and that's a scary place coming from sort of living this life with just minimal responsibility to huge amounts of responsibility so early in recovery. And um, I found it difficult. You know, I really found it difficult and, and meditation helped me. And I can remember we had an argument and I walked off from this argument. And then as I was walking off, I think, wow, that's the first time I've ever had an argument with anybody. And I've just walked off, you know, and it was when I then I would start to see how I was changing in my daily living because of the meditation. Um, you know, I, I, I carry, we, we, we had two children and we was both really involved with the meetings, both had sponsors and, um, service positions. And I'd started sponsoring lots of people and taking them through the steps and, um, helping others. I'd started volunteering at a drug rehab and ended up, um, working there. And our lives was was good in a recovery sense, and um, you know. But I continued this 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 growth inside this this wanting to grow as a as a person, as a human being, as spiritually, emotionally, um, you know. And I started going on courses, and I was doing this, that, and the other. And she stopped calling her sponsor. She stopped calling other people other ladies in AA and stuff. Um, she stopped going to meetings. Um, she stopped praying, stopped meditating, stopped reading spiritual literature. And, 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 and our lives grew apart. We grew apart as people and we ended up, we ended up separating. And within two months of separating, she started going back to meetings and um she'd got involved with some guy though who drank and was taking drugs and stuff and um she was she was seven years clean and sober and within a few weeks with this fella she was drinking within two weeks she was 24 7 drinking within the third week she was smoking crack cocaine and on the fourth week she tried to take her own life and, um, you know, that was three and a half years ago now, and she, she's never made it back. She's inactive alcoholism. Um, I got custody of the children through the courts. 
Um, you know, and they've only seen, the children have only seen her twice in the last two years. You know, this, this, they call like addiction or alcoholism an illness, and it really is, you know, it's an insidious illness. Um, you know, that just doesn't only affect the person, it, 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 it emotionally affects so many people, so many people, you know, and um, my, what I know is now is that this journey for me is for life. I can't not attend meetings. I can't not speak to other people in the fellowship. I can't not, I can't stop the meditation, the reading. Um, I can't stop trying to live by the principles that I live by now. I can't stop being honest with people about how I'm feeling. You know, I need to suit up and show up every day and keep doing this stuff. God has given me an opportunity to be of love and service to two small children. And that's how I viewed it when they was born. It was a, a privilege that I would try to dedicate my life to being of love and service to these two children. And um, has, this, has how I grew up and what went on and how my dad was in certain situations with me, <clears throat> give me a determination not to be like that with them. No, I don't think it has. I think what happened was, was that I started to learn how to live this life, that that old gentleman showed me how to start living by being of service, being kind to people, be, trying to help people. Don't be so selfish, be honest. So I started to live by these principles that in turn, how I approach situations became different. It was different. You know, when I stood at the door and watched him dancing in front of the TV, my heart was filled with joy. And it was just, I, I was looking at the image of his little face and it was just the best feeling in the world. I didn't, there wasn't one part of me thought that it was funny. That's do, amazing. Do you get what I'm saying? That's, that's beautiful. Yeah, it, it's, it, sounds so, it sounds so simple, doesn't it, in terms of, being able to turn those negative things into uh, be, being able to turn the negative ways that you treat people into turning those into positives. And it sounds so simple saying it, but I guess that is the ultimate, the ultimate thing really um, in terms of making it a better world for, for everyone. And one of the things I guess we're trying to do with, with this podcast is by showing how by doing things positively you can yeah. impact but it's, it's so much easier said than done if you, it, it, it's if very you hard you know but you. this this stuff can just it, it can start so simply you know you don't have to be in recovery to start living that life yeah. you don't you mm. you know i i will um i'll stop and speak to anybody you know, I speak mm. with people if I'm in the high street or in coffee shop. I'll just chat with people. You don't know who needs a chat. Mm. You don't know who needs you to just smile and say hello or keep a door open for them. Mm. Absolutely. And you, you know, there's just so much we can do that you don't know that the the fella next door he struggles with taking his bin out. Go and take his bin out without him knowing. Mm. Absolutely. On bin day. And that ties back to that kind of. Uh selfless acts like when you were when you were putting the chairs out for that meeting just doing these small little things can really help people and 
And, you know, Root, Root was talking a moment ago about things that are important for this podcast. And, and one thing that is really important for us is, you know, we, we, we are looking at things with a bit of a male lens. Obviously, alcoholism can affect anybody. You've spoken about a lot of women you've encountered. But I, I was looking at some of the figures and in 2018, the alcohol death rate was about double for men what it is for women. And I did, as someone, you know, you've kind of seen how dangerous these things can be. I mean, my personal theory on that is that it might be that perhaps men rely on crutches like alcohol a bit more than women because generally men might have a harder time processing emotions, talking about things. They don't learn from their role models at a young age, like the fathers, about sharing emotional burdens. Do you think there could be some truth in that and as an explanation as to why men seem to be impacted a lot more than women? Yeah, I mean, I I really think that men definitely struggle to be honest about their emotions. There's there's no doubt about that, you know. And um, I think uh, females are so much more in tune with that sort of stuff and it's quite easy for them to meet with their mates and and talk about how they're really feeling. Uh, You know... The male values of how we see manhood, um, that doesn't come into it, does it? You know, this, this, this idea that you're a man. What is a man? Who, this idea of whoever the person is, what idea they have of what a man is. Um, I think that we lose, we lose the part of us that, that needs to be feminine in some ways. You don't have to be in recovery. You don't have to be a member of any faith or any religion to start living a life of selflessness with love. You don't. You, you can start applying that in your life today. You know, I know, you know, I, I go in a shop every day where I work in Plaxtall and there's a lady in there who smiles all the time, has always got time to speak and have a chat. And that, that, that's... That, that, that person does that with everybody who comes in that shop. That is being of service to other people. Because I know I've gone in there and haven't felt too good and I've started speaking to her and I've started saying how I was feeling or what's gone on in different bits and pieces and I've left the shop and felt different. That person isn't intentionally doing that, or maybe she is, I don't know. But what I do know is, is that if you start giving an energy out to other people, you know, honesty is contagious, you know that. It's absolutely contagious that you, if you just are in the presence of somebody else and you start being honest about yourself, that person, it gives them license to start being honest. It gives them license to start being honest. And particularly with men, that can break down some of the, you know, macho, oh, I think a lot of men feel the pressure to look like they've got it all together and, and yeah, nothing bothers me, I'm in total control. But just that little bit of honesty can help, you know, make someone else feel uncomfortable maybe about sharing something or... Or you know, opening up a bit, which as we've come on to in this episode is so is so important. And Dan, um, as we kind of view towards wrapping up quite soon, I did have one of my list of questions that I was really keen to ask you. I did have one more that I really wanted to get your get your thoughts on. I think um, your your story has shown the consequences and and dangers of excessive alcohol use. And I mean binge drinking has become a bit of a badge of honour for a lot of people, people who aren't struggling necessarily with straight alcoholism. But I was looking earlier and found that more than a quarter of all drinkers in Great Britain do binge drink. Um, I think once a week, that is. And my question to you was, do you think that 
given how dangerous alcohol can be if used in the wrong way or by the wrong people, do you think as a society it's it's too it's almost it it's too acceptable like the whole binge drinking thing is alcohol too much a part of our society or do you think it's kind of an, on the individual level and everyone has a responsibility to moderate themselves yeah i mean it's it's a really hard one because you know so many businesses rely on that you know so you've got other people's livelihoods you've only got to go down into Tunbridge or Seven Oaks or wherever it may be and there's pubs, restaurants, pubs, restaurants. You know, so it's it's just everywhere, isn't it? Alcohol is everywhere. You know, and this, this idea of binge... I think people are going to do it, you know, especially at certain age groups, they're going to do it. Um, I think you just have to allow people the right to be wrong, like that lady said. Yeah, like that lady said that time, you just got to allow people the right to be wrong, have their own journeys and stuff. You know, I would never, even an alcoholic, I'd never say stop drinking. I wouldn't say stop doing that. You know, because you, you, what, what I've learned is, is when trying to help people um, with alcoholism and drug addiction and stuff, is to never tell them what they shouldn't or shouldn't be doing. What, what you, you need to do is you need to show them how you're living your life. You need to show them that there is another way that works. And that they don't have to, but any point, finger pointing or telling, you know, people shut down. You have to allow people to go on their own journeys. I know a guy who sort of, you know, he really struggles with interacting with life and people and, and he's become a bit of a recluse. And I say to him all the time, you know, to grow as a human being, or to grow spiritually and emotionally, you have to put yourself out there and go and experience stuff, whether it's right, wrong or indifferent. You've got to go and experience stuff because the growth of a human for the human mind, the emotions, the spirit is only born out of experience. So if people are binge drinking, you know, they're going to carry on binge drinking, but that experience will eventually take them to a place where maybe something will change inside them and their lives will change for the better. Or maybe it won't, but you they're gonna have these experiences along the way. And, and, and to me, that's what life is now. It's just, you just have to get up, suit up, show up and experience it. Yeah, those are really powerful words, Dan. And I think, I think it was definitely a sign of your humility and selflessness that I asked you if you think alcohol is a problem for society. And your first thought was about the businesses that rely on it and people's livelihoods that are at stake. And I think that's a lovely uh, display, like I said, of your selflessness and, and humility on the subject. of. We've come a really long way on this episode, Dan. It's been amazing speaking to you. I mean, I, I haven't met you in person, which is a, such a shame because of all the COVID stuff going on. But I feel I feel like I know you and I feel very proud of you as somebody who's never even met you. And Thank you. I just wanted to say good on you, mate. Your, your story is incredible and you've, you've, you're smashing it pleasure it's been great meeting you too tom and thanks so much for taking the time out to speak to us as well dan no worries root absolute pleasure well when all this madness is over maybe we will we meet up for a park run or something like that yeah good I'm yeah good. definitely yeah. it'll be good absolutely be good love to no worries thanks so much to dan rogerly for joining us today this podcast was produced by tom and myself and sound designed by jack sudderby you can follow us on instagram at behind the mask podcast